Well, we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 30 this morning, if you want to turn there. And I want to start with a question as you're getting prepared. When was the last time that you can remember that you were carefree? Maybe not 100% carefree. I don't know if that actually even exists. Most of the way there. As I pondered this question myself and and, uh, threw it out to my wife, for my wife and I, we both had the same immediate thought. The most carefree moment we had was 15 years ago on vacation in Aruba. It was our honeymoon. And we didn't know enough about life or about the world or about what was coming down the pike for us with 13 miscarriages and uh, starting a church and everything else. We just kind of were living life. And there was a lot about that trip that was memorable and awesome, but most memorable was the sense of being carefree. Our biggest choice during the day was to lay on the, the, the lounge chairs with a little flag that we could stick in the sand and a waiter would come out and ask us for our food and, and uh, drink orders and then he'd come back a few minutes later and it was about as close as I'll ever get to someone dropping grapes in my mouth, Right? <laughs> And our choice was between that and going into the surf that was warm like bath water and laying in the slow surf, picking up seashells and talking to my wife. It was the most amazing time. Carefree. I remember this very much because it was something that was so different and it was only for a short time. Oddly enough, no matter how hard we try in this life to search out being carefree, we can't seem to get it back. We can't seem to find it. Kelly and I try to be carefree. We will ourselves to be carefree. We go into environments and vacations and buy things in order to be carefree. And for some reason, we can't seem to get it back because life is full of cares. We actually get the word care in our English language from the word grief. It seems to fit, doesn't it? Life is full of grief. So when we say, I want to be carefree, what we are really saying is, I want to be grief-free. Now, there is another word in the English language that means the same thing in one word. Desire to be carefree or being carefree. It's summed up in one English word. The word comes from a Latin root, but it comes to security. When you say, I want security in life, you are crying out to be free from grief, free from care. And we, especially as Americans, spend most, but I think all humans do, we spend most, if not all of our lives, trying to find that elusive security, don't we? We start out early in life and we have grand plans of how we will attain that elusive security. And as time goes on, we feel the clock ticking against us that we may not actually attain it, and so we try harder and harder Security in material needs, security in relationships, security in salvation. We want to be free from care, and is there anything wrong with that? Absolutely not. I would submit to you the reason that we want that is because that's what we were created for. We were created to be care-free. Isn't that ironic when you think about it? God created for us a world in which we actually were. And our individual efforts and our efforts as a society to gain that back is theological at its root. We're not just trying to gain retirement. We are trying to gain the garden back. 
We're trying to gain back that relationship with God. We were created to rely on the provision of God. Talk about grapes being dropped in your mouth. It was right there. We had it as humanity. God had given us everything we need to serve him, love him, and to love one another, free of care and worry and grief. That sounds idyllic, doesn't it? Free of those things. It sounds like paradise. But there's a problem, isn't there? Carefree was the Garden of Eden, and we are not in the garden no matter what we do. One of my favorite sayings is, if earth is heaven, then heaven wouldn't be heaven. But yet we try so hard to make it heaven. We spend our lives trying to recreate a shadow, an apparition of the garden that's here but not really here, and it feels like vapor. It's a place, life is, where death and sadness can't find that carefree. Some of us attempt to create it with our surroundings. Some of us attempt to create it with our personalities. We create it outside of ourselves. I'll just go on vacation, then I'll be carefree. Notice the billboards that the airlines use? Escape. Yeah, try escaping on an airplane now, you'll get punched in the face by a steward, right? (laughs) Not really idyllic anymore. The reality is, is that we can't create it outside of ourselves. And so then, then many of us, and you know who you are, try to escape internally. I'll just be the class clown and make it super funny, and then we can't talk about anything deep. We either create it outside of ourselves or inside of ourselves, always trying to escape the seriousness of life around us. And so we look for the illusion of security. We can't find it. And so we look for the illusion of escape. And we can't find it. So we reminisce for the good old days when we had it, all the while realizing that we never actually had it. It was just a time where our understanding was clouded by our youth. And so for each of us, those good old days, that good old day, it's that time before that one event. Or that time before I lost that person. Or that time before I was abused. Or that time before I abused before that hurt. And so we keep seeking that elusive security, each of us desiring to find the it that will finally make us happy, that will finally wrap us in the security blanket that makes us feel as we did when we were first a child. And what we will see this morning as we look at chapters 30 and 31 is that Judah was doing the same thing. They were trying to escape the realities of life around them, trying to pursue the elusive truth, that we were created for being carefree, but it's not there right now. And we'll see Isaiah's prophetic warning in the midst of that, that they're looking at the wrong thing, that it's okay to desire being carefree and finding rest, but we must find it in the proper source. You see, Assyria was coming from the east, and they were going to come down into Judah and destroy it and take them into exile just as they did with Israel. And so Judah was loaded down with cares of the world on their shoulders. So what would they do? They would look to their southern neighbors. They would go down into Egypt and they would cry out to them for an alliance, for help, in order to fight back Assyria. And Judah thought that they were safe in their alliance with Egypt. And so they gave lip service to their idea of following God, but it was all talk. They said with their words, we want to rely on God, we want to trust God. But then in their actions, they went down to Egypt to seek out the help of a very earthly, worldly enemy. 
of God. And so as we saw in chapter 29 there, verse 13, the Lord said, Because this people draw near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, with, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people. And he goes on to say, even in spite of their sin and their lack of trust, he will work with them. And so now we arrive at chapter 31, or excuse me, chapter 30, where we will be looking through chapter 30 and 31 to God's call to Judah. And in so doing, we will be presented with a challenge that I think is very pertinent to us today. And I have titled it this, Repenting from the Illusion of Earthly Security. Repenting from the Illusion of Earthly Security. And we'll flesh out what this means today as we look at the text. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1. Ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan but not mine, and who make an alliance but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. For though his officials are at Zoan and his envoys reach Hanes, everyone comes to shame through a people that cannot profit them, that brings neither help nor profit, but shame and disgrace. God looks upon the people here and he sees their leaders going down to the border with Egypt to the cities of Zoan and Hanes, to meet the Egyptians, to form an alliance. And what they're doing is they're buying into the lie of false security. That's the first thing you can write down. The lie of false security. He starts out there, that awe in English. Ah, oh, stubborn children. It's that word in Hebrew, oi. Some of you have heard of it, oi vey. Oy vey, stubborn children. Parents, how many times do you want to cry that out during the day? Right? Look on your kids. Oy vey, stubborn children. There you go. You got a new one, right? Your kids will be like, what? when did you start speaking Yiddish? But this seems reasonable, does it not? You have someone about to invade. You have armies on your border about to come in. You need military strength. You need weapons, right? Seems reasonable. I've got to go down to Egypt and get help. Assyria's about to destroy us. What would God have us do? Come on. But think about this for a minute. At the core of the identity of the people of God is one event. At the core of the identity of the people of God is one event. It's an event that set them on a trajectory of being Yahweh's special people. Dear church, what was that event? The Exodus. It was leaving Egypt. Do you understand the irony here of the fact that in order to gain security, they're actually going back to that which God freed them from? The Exodus was Yahweh's divine act of sending a redeemer by the name of Moses and working to destroy the gods and the leader of Egypt, Pharaoh, in a way that put them down and humbled them to free the people and bring them out of Egypt so that they would be free to receive the law of God and become a light to all the nations around them, that there is one true God. And so in Exodus, he says this, 
This is Exodus chapter 6, verses 5 through 8. I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant, God said. Say therefore to the people of Israel, he tells Moses, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I am the Lord. This was at the core of who they were. God freed them to keep them from the burden of slavery and the yoke of oppression in Egypt. And yet the people of Judah refused the protection of the Lord. And thus, in essence, they reversed the exodus. They reversed the freedom God had given them. They were going back to the very place and position from which they received freedom. The proverb states, just as a dog returns to its vomit. This is what they were doing. They were going back to the very thing that enslaved them. Why would they do this? Well, we get a hint of the word that is here rendered alliance, right there in verse 1. Who carry out a plan but not mine, who make an alliance. Now, you might notice in your margin there that it says, who weave a web. This is a very hard word in Hebrew to figure out, and so there are various translations. But the word is used twice Uh, in other places in Isaiah, and both times it's used to talk about something woven together like a blanket or a veil. And so the reality here, as one commentator puts it, is that the word could be used and literally translated, they make a protective covering or seek a protective covering. In our current day nomenclature, we could say they're seeking a security blanket. Now, that might not be 100% perfect in translation. That's a little bit of, you know, me using a little bit of current day verbiage. But it gives us a great picture here. They were seeking a security blanket. You might say, there's nothing I see wrong with a security blanket. And I would say, yes, that's true. Security blankets are okay for children. Let me give you an example. I am about to crucify myself on the cross of giving you information about me that you can now hold against me for the rest of my life. I used to have a blanket. It was orange. And, you know, when I was five, judging by my kid's height, I was probably about 6'4", right? But I, I was still a little guy, you know? And I had this orange blanket and had little pieces of yarn that came out of it. And when I was really little, like, like one year old or whatever, I would take those pieces of yarn between my finger and I called it my knowing knowing blanket because I would take the pieces. Yes, Shane, you're going to take this and run with it, I know. Next week, worship, he's going to say something about Hans's knowing knowing blanket. Okay? And I used to take it and I used to rub it against my nose and go knowing 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 whenever I was ever stressed, right? Now, think about it, okay? Now, now really cute as a kid, right? I, I do have to say, it's kind of cute as a kid, you know? I love it when I see my daughter grabbing her doggy and like she gets stressed, so she's doggy, right? What would you think of me as your pastor, six foot ten, thirty-seven, with a beard, if I got up here and was like, I, I got to teach through the woes today, and I'm really scared about your reaction. Noing, 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 noing. What would you think? Yes, thank you, somebody interacting. Crazy, right? You'd be like, what? What, what is he doing? It might get a little bit awkward in here, right? 
When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Judah should have known as a people that they didn't need a security blanket. They had outgrown that. They had Yahweh. See, a child needs a security blanket because all they know is what they can touch. But we walk not by sight. We walk by faith as mature Christians. And we don't need those security blankets anymore because we know the truth that God is with us and he will never forsake us. We have the Lord of the armies of heaven on our side. And Judah was seeking something other than God's covering by his spirit. And this was a deliberate intention to sin and would only bring shame. Take a look at verse 6. An oracle on the beasts of the Negev. Through a land of trouble and anguish, from where come the lioness and the lion, the adder and the flying fiery serpent? They, the Judahites, carry their riches on the backs of donkeys and their treasures on the humps of camels to a people that cannot profit them. Egypt's help is worthless and empty. Therefore, I have called her Rahav Hem Shabbat. It's translated here, Rahab, who sits still, makes no sense to us. Rahav Hem Shabbat means bluster that sits still. We could put it this way, all talk, no walk. All bark, no bite. All icing, no cake. They were going to Egypt to get something, and they thought they would get something. But the reality was it turned out to be air. It turned out to be nothing. One Scottish theologian of the 1800s called this dragon do-nothing. Looks like something big and scary, something that will wreak havoc on the Assyrians, but the reality is they could do nothing. And this is the picture of the garden, isn't it? The proof was before the eyes of Adam and Eve. They had food. They had trees. They had perfection. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They had each other. They saw God creating things from the ground. And yet it wasn't enough. They fell captive to the blustery words of a serpent who didn't give them life, didn't provide for them. He showed up as the accuser, and he didn't accuse Adam and Eve. Notice, we always think that, oh, God, he's accusing. We we stick so heavily in Job, but who is he accusing first? He's accusing the father of not being good enough. He's accusing the father in your mind. He doesn't care about you. He's left you. Look at your life. It's not what you wanted. See, he's not a good father. He didn't give you everything you want. Parents, is that a good parent gives their child everything they want? No, it's a terrible parent. That doesn't mean God is not good. It means that he's a good father who wants to guide us and lead us. And so rather than the security that was known and sure in front of their eyes, Adam and Eve chose drag and do nothing. They chose to follow bluster that sits still, all bluster, no provision. They chose to follow the illusion and the lie of earthly security. Just take the control on your own. Push against God, he said. You know what you're doing. Raise your hand in here if you know what you're doing on any given day. I never know what I'm doing. Even things I'm skilled at, I still go, man, I got a lot to learn. And so what's so interesting about this, notice with me, that the Judahites were trying to escape. Notice this. They were trying to escape from the feared killer, Assyria, by seeking help from the proven killer of Egypt. Let me say that again. They were trying to escape from the feared killer that hadn't materialized, Assyria, by seeking help from the proven killer, Egypt. And this is what we do as humanity, isn't it? 
In an attempt to escape what we fear, we seek security from that which we know will destroy us. In an attempt to escape what we fear, we seek security from that which we know will destroy us. Let me give you an example here. In relationships, there is not a human being I have ever met that doesn't fear abandonment or not being good enough or not being part of the crowd or being left aside. In other words, we fear broken intimacy. So what do we do as humans to protect ourselves and gain security so we are free from the possible grief of broken intimacy? We intentionally create distance from those people by holding them at bay. In other words, we so fear distance and broken intimacy that we intentionally break intimacy so that we can at least be in control. It's kind of like quitting before your boss fires you. We fear something that hasn't materialized, and so to stay away from it, to find a way away from grief, we go towards grief. We do something that will intentionally break us. In the case of relationships, we intentionally create distance, or we gossip behind the person's back, or we ignore them, or we tell them off, or we cut them down in our own mind. We fear broken intimacy, so we escape through breaking that intimacy and purposefully sinning against each other. I don't know if I belong at that church, so I'm going to come up with the reason why that church is bad. So then it's their fault, not mine. Then it's their responsibility to connect to me, not mine to connect to them. Dear flock, what is it that you use as a security blanket? What is it that you use to escape? What is it that you use to try and grasp the illusion of security? If it's not the Lord, you will eventually find that it's a dragon do nothing. It will never fulfill. It will most likely only bring shame. It's interesting to me when I travel. People are nervous when they travel. You ever notice that? Everybody in the airport is doing one of two things. They're either trying to make themselves look big. You know what I'm talking about, the dude with the laptop and the iPad and the phone. Yeah, I'm doing a big deal right now. I'm a big deal. I'm a big deal. Everybody look at me. I'm a big deal. Can everybody hear me on my cell phone? Right? You guys know what I'm talking about. Right? They're trying to make themselves a big deal. Or the person who's hurriedly going around going, no one noticed me. No one noticed me. No one noticed me. No one noticed me. Okay? Both protection mechanisms. And then you find people, if you watch them long enough, I'm a people watcher, I like watching people, you find them getting anxious. What do they do? <gasps> I got to look at Instagram and Facebook. Oh, I feel connected now. Oh, I actually have no connection whatsoever, and I'm more distanced than I've ever been, but at least I'm feeling connected. The illusion of security. The illusion and lie of security. Well, God goes on to tell Isaiah to write down this next part because he wants it remembered because it's so very important. He's about to tell us the fuel of false security. And by fuel, what I mean is that which keeps it going. It's like gasoline poured on a fire. Without it, the fire would go out, the lie would stop, the illusion would cease. 
But with it, it keeps going in our lives. And what he's about to tell us that fuel is, is an unwillingness to hear God. An unwillingness to hear God. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 30, starting in verse 8. God says to Isaiah, Now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. Remember, paper wasn't easily available in these days. This was like us saying, you know, chisel it in metal and put it in a vault, okay? He says, For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust not in him, but in oppression and perverseness and rely on them. Therefore, this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. In other words, you think it's providing protection, but it will destroy you when it falls. He says, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the hearth or to dip up water out of the cistern. You see, the divine mind will counter my fleshly mind and yours, but it must be an ongoing stream of refreshment that flows through us constantly. We must go back to it as a thirsty man does water, as a hungry man for bread, not simply as a religious duty for 10 or 15 minutes for our morning Devo, but as a life-giving necessity. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But notice that it is not that they just don't hear it. They're not getting up out of church and leaving. They're not closing their Bibles. It's that they're unwilling to hear the instruction of Yahweh. It's not that they ask for the preaching to cease, only that they not be given the truth. Do not see, do not prophesy what is right. And what is right is to preach life to the dead and repentance to those in sin. They don't want to hear it. Speak to us smooth things, give us illusions. The smooth things can be translated flattery, and the illusions, deceit. Lie to us. Flatter us. In other words, we would rather be lied to regardless of whether or not it condemns us for all eternity, as long as it makes us feel good. It is unfortunate to me. I had another conversation recently. In multiple different scenarios, I have talked to Christians over the last five years who have told me this phrase, Hans, I just want church to be a place where I come and I'm told that I'm doing a good job. Guys, read the Bible. Read your Bible. That's not what my job is or any preacher or pastor 
who is doing the right job. A biblical pastor will both encourage and convict in a massive way. Unfortunately, the majority of the people that I have heard that from are those who are older than me. I find this thing, and this is a word to you that are older in this community. I find that there is this point in American Christianity where we think we can retire from carrying the mission of God to the world. And we finally get our chance to do all the things we never wanted to do. It breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. Young folks, you're not off the hook. We're just too stupid to figure that out. The reality is, is that we are never done pursuing the mission of God. We always must have the spark deep within us to take this gospel truth that is life to the dead to those around us. Paul told Timothy, the time is coming when people will not endure or put up with sound teaching. It's too hard for them. But having itching ears, ears that want to be flattered, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Into myths. It has become so bad in the lives of these Judites that they are asking the prophets to, notice it, leave the way, turn aside from the truth, repent from telling the truth. That's what people are asking the prophets to do here. And they're in essence saying, make the Holy One of Israel go away. We're tired of hearing about His holiness and His requirement of us that we are holy as He is holy. Can't you just soothe our consciences, ease our pain? Hearing has become become unacceptable to them and they wanted nothing that would demand something of them, only preaching that would leave life unruffled. In our current day verbiage, we would say this, tell me I am saved and loved by God, but do not require a cost. Leave my life alone, but tell me I get into heaven. We want to feel good, whether or not it is an illusion, and so we arrange our Instagram life that looks good within the frame, but outside is slowly eating away at us, propping ourselves up with false security, all the while knowing that hearing God is the only thing that will save us and bring us rest. True rest that is not dependent upon our feelings or our senses or our circumstances, that is what God can bring us. Look at the next verse, verse 15. For thus says Yahweh, Elohim, the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning, he says, in repenting and coming back to him, and rest you shall be saved. In quietness and in trust shall be your strength. God wants to give us this. He wants so badly. But yet we, like Judah, refuse and instead seek something else for our security. And it will end up destroying us. Look at what he says next. But you were unwilling and you said, no, we will flee upon horses. Therefore, you shall flee away. And we will ride upon swift steeds, therefore your pursuers shall be swift. A thousand shall flee at the threat of one, at the threat of five you shall flee, till you are left like a flagstaff on the top of a mountain, like a signal on a hill. A sign that someone was once alive, but now is gone. What we really need is to understand this illusion that we constantly seek and to repent from it. 
to turn from it and instead to seek the truth that we are people who need to be carefree. We were created for it. But our next point is this. We will only find true security in the Lord. We will only find true security in the Lord. I'm amazed at the graciousness of God, that in the midst of people saying, we do not want to hear you, God comes up with the next verses. I want you to take a breath if you feel the heaviness of conviction, and I want you to soak up and get ready to drink in some of the most profound words I believe are in Isaiah. Look with me at Isaiah 30, 18. Therefore, because, because you don't want to follow me, because you don't want to listen to me, because you're rebellious children, look at his grace. Yahweh, the Lord, waits to be gracious to you. He waits to be gracious to us. This is the father of the prodigal son, not boarding up his door, not saying, I don't want you anymore, but saying, I wait for you to repent. I wait for you to see the illusion of the pig slop that you're laying in, the illusion of riches, the illusion of having the prodigal life, and I am waiting for you to come back. I'm waiting for you to return and understand that I am your good father who wants to rejoice in you and give you an inheritance that will never fade. This is the heart of Yahweh. It's the heart of our God. He's waiting to be gracious to you and I. And therefore, he exalts himself to show mercy to you, he says. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Oh, man. He's always at work restoring right relationship. This is who he is. This is our God. And so blessed are we that wait for him. Life may not happen in our timing or yours. It may not happen in my power or yours in your method, in your plan. But I can tell you this morning, guys, and please, can I get an amen at the end of this? God is good. It doesn't matter our circumstances, what's in the Instagram frame. It could be the world falling apart. God is good. He gave his son to die on the cross so that we could be one with him. He gave his spirit to quicken our hearts, to desire his word as if it was water to a thirsty soul. He gave us his spirit to unite us together in family and create secure relationships that are not perfect, but that allow us to be who we were created to truly be, if we let them. This is the good father, and he's given us good gifts. And he's waiting for the opportunity that arrives when someone trusts in him. This is not a sales call this morning. I'm not going to follow this up with trust God because he has a wonderful and perfect plan for your life, and life will be easy after this. That is a false gospel. It is, in fact, a lie. It is illusory. It should never be preached. Here's the truth. God has a wonderful, perfect plan for your life, and it may be excruciating. But at the end of it, you will be closer to Jesus and his people than you could ever fathom. What happens when you put your trust in him is that you now know you are on his side. So many of us spend so much time asking, is God on my side? Is God with me in this? No, no, no. When you trust in God, here's what you know beyond a shadow of a doubt. You are on God's side. 
You can always, always be assured that you are on the right side of history and justice if you are following his word and acting within his character. So many Christians get saved and we automatically think, whatever I do now, God's for it. No, the only way you know if God is for it is if you are imaging him. And you only know that if you're letting the word be written upon your heart. And you are assured that the grim grim reaper of death has no power, the ticking clock of unmet expectations and failures has no power, the accuser of shame from the past abuse that you have suffered has no power, the guilt of past sin has no power regardless of earthly consequences. Light has come, the darkness has fled, and you are standing in the truth and you are secure, never to be removed from that place. The words of Jesus give us this security. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than some, no, all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. You know that you are secure. And so for for Judah, they like us needed reassurance of this truth. Let's look at verse 19. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious, gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher. Guys, I long for the day that I can get off this stage because the physical flesh and blood Jesus stands among us. I long for the day that I can sit in the seats with you and I can cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Praise you, God. Our teacher will one day show himself and our eyes will see him. And our ears shall hear a word behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. When you turn to the right or when you turn to the left, then you will defile your carved idols overlaid with silver and your gold-plated metal images. You will scatter them as unclean things. You will say to them, be gone. Those illusions of security, you'll say, be gone. And he will give rain for the seed with which you sow the ground, the bread, the produce of the ground, which will be rich and plenteous. In that day, your livestock will graze in large pastures, and the oxen and the donkeys that work the ground will eat seasoned fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. And on every lofty mountain and every high hill, there will be brooks running with water in the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow." Now, Isaiah says here, it may feel like your bread is adversity. It may feel like your water is affliction. And you wonder, just like I do, in those moments, where is God? It would be so easy, God, for you to just fix this. Maybe you're a kid and you think to yourself, it would be so easy, God, if you just fix the divorce. Maybe you're a spouse and you think, God, it would be so easy for you if you just fixed my spouse. But to answer, Isaiah doesn't say, yeah, God works on your timeline and your method with your plan. 
He says, though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher will not hide himself anymore. And he draws in this context upon two pictures. The first one you can write down is the Exodus. The Exodus. Verse 19, he says that the people who dwell in Jerusalem, they will no more weep. He will surely be gracious gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. This language is massive, massive in the mind of the Jew listening to it because it reminds them of the Exodus. Here's what Exodus 3, 7 through 8 says. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. This idea of God being gracious, hearing the sound of their cry, what Isaiah is saying to them is, you will be freed again. You will be rescued again. Man, we should be praying for that, guys. In this church, in the surrounding area of Salem and Kaiser, in Oregon, in the United States, in the world, we should be praying for the exodus to occur again. Lord, do it again. Free this world from the oppression of the taskmaster of sin and the illusion of false security. The second thing he calls on in verses 23 through 26 is he gives all this imagery that we in our American mindset really quickly will go over to prosperity. We'll say, oh, finally, he'll make us successful and rich. But guys, that's one of those false security things. If you are chasing the brass ring, if only I can get that thing, if only I can get that material good, or if only I can get so much money in my bank account, or if only I can get so much in payroll, or if only I can get so much, guys, it's illusory. You'll never get it. But if I can make the millions like Bill Gates, talk to Bill Gates, it's illusory. It's not the millions that make him content. Why do you think he's spending millions to be one of the biggest philanthropists that's ever existed? He knows that the money doesn't fulfill him, that the business success doesn't fulfill him. So he talks about not prosperity, but about the garden. He speaks of the future messianic kingdom in which God will transform the world and the people within it into the restored garden of Eden that covers the entire earth. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That restoration, that restoration comes because of the character of our God. He's a God that frees the oppressed, restores the hurt and the broken. And it says he will bind up the brokenness of his people. And just as he's done many times before, he speaks of a truth in the future, but now he gives us a truth nearer to the Judahites that were listening of the day. And he will speak of the destruction of the approaching enemy. He does this to give credence to his future prophecy. He speaks of one more imminent. Let's look at verse 27. Behold, the name of the Lord comes from afar, burning with his anger and in thick rising smoke. His lips are full of fury and his tongue is like a devouring fire. His breath is like an overflowing stream that reaches up to the neck to sift the nations with the sieve of destruction and to place on the jaws of the peoples a bridle that leads astray. You shall have a song as in the night when a holy feast is kept and gladness of heart as when one sets out to the sound of the flute to go to the mountain of the Lord, to the rock of Israel. That's the name of their God, of our God, Yahweh, the rock of Israel. And the Lord will cause his majestic voice to be heard and the descending blow of his arm to be seen in furious anger and a flame of devouring fire with a cloudburst and storm and hailstones. The Assyrians will be terror-stricken at the voice of the Lord when he strikes with his rod 
And every stroke of the appointed staff that the Lord lays on them will be to the sound of tambourines and lyres or celebration. Battling with brandished arm, he will fight with them, for a burning place has long been prepared. Indeed, for the king it was made ready, its pyre made deep and wide, with fire and wood in abundance. The breath of the Lord, like a stream of sulfur, kindles it. Isaiah uses tons of apocalyptic language here to speak of the wrath of God coming upon the Assyrians, the enemies of his people. He shows himself as the rock, the strong arm of the Lord, the rod of discipline that will come on behalf of the people. The king of Assyria, he thinks he's coming to exile Judah, but he's actually making his way to his own funeral. Even the funeral pyre of verse 33 is set and waiting for him to be placed upon it. And as we looked at last time, and we'll look at in the weeks to come, we know that God delivered his people. In one night, an angel of the Lord came into the camp of Assyria and killed 185,000 people. You can find that in 2 Kings 19. And Isaiah tells Judah this because the Lord and the Lord alone is where we find security. It is a rest that overcomes anything we face in this world. Shame, abandonment, failure, abuse, they are all dissolved at the feet of Jesus. I think as Christians, for those of you that are believers in here today, sometimes our problem is not not trusting God. It's not wholly trusting God. We hedge our bets. I want to trust God, and I'll put some in that pot, but I'm still, I'm still going to seek out those things which give me a little bit of immediate security. I know, I know, I know that they're an illusion and that they're fake and that they're empty, but gosh, it feels so good in the moment, doesn't it? And, you know, if this whole Jesus thing isn't real, then at least I've lived it up in this life. And so then when God doesn't deliver on what we have expected as his promises, promises that are not in the word, we put it on him that he has been unfaithful to us. And he hasn't delivered on his plan. But the reality is, is that we were never all in. And so in light of the lie of false security and the fact that we oftentimes do this as Christians, Isaiah speaks to the people and he calls to them and he says this. He says that you need to repent from the illusion of earthly security. Call to repent from the illusion of earthly security. God is crystal clear to the people of Judah here. Let's look at, look at chapter 31. It's a short chapter and we'll read through the whole thing here. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. And yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but will arise against the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. The Egyptians are man and not God, and their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall, and they will all perish together. For thus the Lord said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. 
So the Lord of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hills. Like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day everyone shall cast away his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. And the Assyrian shall fall by a sword not of man, and a sword not of man shall devour him, and he shall flee from the sword. And his young men shall be put to forced labor, his rock shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic, declares the Lord, whose fire is in Zion and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. God is crystal clear here. He will give them security. He will give them victory over their enemy, but they must turn to him. The word here, turn to him, is typical Hebrew for the word repent. Woe to us who still rely on that which will be destroyed. Think about that. Woe to us who rely on that which will be destroyed. When you think about that phrase, guys, it really narrows your focus. Shout it out. What is eternal in this world? Nothing. Nothing. Woe to us who rely on things that will be destroyed for our security. It makes no sense. And so he says, repent. Remember, guys, repent is a very easy thing to grasp, hard thing to do. Repent is, means you're going a certain direction. And you stop and turn and pursue something else. Many people hear the word of God and they, they think that that's enough. Many people hear the word of God and they feel pulled to it and think that's enough. Many people hear the word of God, are pulled to it, and start to turn And in every case, think that they're done. But the reality is, until you turn away from that which you were relying on for security and face Jesus and pursue him, it's not repentance. It's not to give up the desire for security, guys. Don't hear me today as saying, being carefree, secure, that's terrible. No, we're created for it. Hear me today as begging and pleading with you to stop filling up your appetite that needs a seven-course meal with cotton candy. Hear me today pleading with you to stop taking as security that thing that is a phantom and doesn't exist and instead rely upon the true rest, the true love, the true fullness that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. What was it that was behind their pursuit of earthly security? Again, we are given a look here. Why did they trust in these things, even though they knew that they weren't the Lord? Well, because they trusted in chariots, because they were many, and in horsemen, because they were very strong. They did not rely upon the truth of God. They relied upon their senses and feelings and what those told them. That looks like a lot of chariots. That'll be helpful. Those guys are big. I want them on my side. Woe to us who go back to the flesh for security when God sent his son to free us from that security. Not to free us from feelings or emotions, but to allow us by the Spirit to harness our feelings and emotions to point us back to the thing we truly need, which is Jesus Christ. 
Today, I want us to examine our lives and see what we are putting as our trust, what we are putting our trust in for security. Many of you know that this is the case in your life. In fact, I would say it's probably true for every person in this room. It's just a different poison that we choose. As I read this list, I want you to listen to the prompting of the Spirit and the conviction that it brings, and I want you to write down what you know is your security blanket in this life. Maybe it's your money, your bank account, your stuff. Maybe it's your 401k, your retirement that, just to remind you, could disappear in a flash. Maybe it's your relationships with your parents, your spouse, your children, or a dating relationship. Maybe you find comfort in the relationship you desire and don't have yet. Maybe you find comfort in creating a false identity and appearance, knowing that you are not being transparent with those around you. Maybe it's living a lifestyle you can't afford, or at the very least can't afford while still being faithful to the call of God on your finances. Maybe your security blanket is simply just escape. Hours on end watching sports on TV when the all, we all know that there will be a new champion next year and everybody is a loser again at the end of the season. Maybe it's hours trying to find that one film on Netflix that will finally fulfill you and after an hour and a half of scanning through, you realize, I don't really want to watch Netflix anymore. Maybe it's Pinterest. Maybe it's making yourself into Martha Stewart. Maybe it's social media, unhealthy preoccupation with the weekend or vacations. Maybe it's addictive substances or pornography or romance. Maybe it's food or drink. Maybe it's weed. Maybe it's works of service, finally being the Messiah for someone. And when you fail in that, you find yourself broken because you couldn't fix them. Maybe it's politics that you find your security blanket. Maybe it's violence or war. Maybe it's secondary religious beliefs and traditions and things that you know are what a true church does, but this church doesn't do. What is it that God is asking you to repent from today? What is your chariot, your horseman? He's calling you to turn from those things and trust in the name and the character of our God because he will see us through. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? What bill shall we pay? That's my addition. For the Gentiles shall seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. See, God is the one that we need to trust in, nothing else. Turn with me to Psalm 20, and we'll finish here. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Can I get an amen? 
May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. Can I get another amen? May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. Selah. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. Don't worry, no flag wavers here today. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust in the name of Yahweh Elohim, the Lord our God, the Lord that gave his son for our salvation. We trust in him. Amen? They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the King. May he answer us when we call. 